Okay, we're recording. Fully professional, fully prepared. Beautiful. As usual. So how Let's is it rock. going, Elliot? It's going well. Great to talk to you guys. Yeah, that's pretty great. Like, how how is how was Amsterdam? <laughs> like, we have another conversation exactly the same. <laughs> as we just had. Okay. Okay. Let's 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 get let's get let's get off. And okay. So, um, thank you to start with. Thank you for participating. Uh, that's Indeed. pretty pretty kind of you. Uh, I'm just going to give a quick introduction about yourself, and then we're going to delve into a couple of questions that we have for you. So Elliot, you are a design researcher and strategist whose work focuses on speculative inquiries at the confluence of social, technological, and environmental impact. You are also an assistant professor at, of strategic design at Parsons Schools of Design and co-founder of the Extrapolation Factory, a design future studio based in Brooklyn. Is that correct? That is. So my, for having me on. <laughs> so my first question is, what is the Extrapolation Factory, and how did this all start? The Extrapolation Factory is a, a research studio uh, that I founded with a, another designer, uh, Chris Wolpkin. Um, we've been collaborating on projects through this moniker since uh, 2012. Mm -hmm. um, really, the idea behind the Extrapolation Factory is uh, to move futures research out of these like academic contexts, the um, the Hollywood spaces, the political spaces, and into forums where it wouldn't necessarily find its own way, but um, there's some perceived value. So in a, a school classroom with a group of 10-year-old kids or um, on a street corner in the middle of New York City, these are some of the venues that we've started to run futures workshops to help people think about long-term futures. Okay. Um, I wondered if you could just explain a little bit about what, what you mean by strategic design as well. Is your professor of strategic design at Parsons and, and how that yeah. feeds into the work that you do in the studio? So the studio and my teaching at Parsons are, are essentially symbiotic. Um, a lot of the work that I've been doing at Parsons has actually helped to give rise to the extrapolation factory. One of the initial exercises I did with a student um, or group of students was the impetus for the first project we did through the extrapolation factory. Mm. But um, there are also many uh, assignments, exercises I've done with students that have come out of experiments through the extrapolation factory. Um, strategic design is essentially just the application of design principles to the process of planning. And when we think about planning, we're, we're essentially um, placing uh, milestones ahead of us in the future and uh, working on uh, approaches for helping ourselves arrive at the places we want to be. So this is oftentimes applied in, in corporate senses, but strategic design really can go far beyond a, a corporate perspective. Um, it, it weaves its way into all sorts of parts of our lives. Cool. Sounds very interesting. Uh, with regard to your actual practice and the, the future possibilities that you're talking about, uh, I was wondering if you could actually elaborate a little bit more uh, about your methods and eventually give us like a, an example. Yeah, like some of these projects. So the ones that you're doing leading to and from the conversation with students or with some of the bigger kind of organizations you've worked with, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, one of the things that, that we find is really helpful for students is to give them an opportunity to 
develop future visions based on uh, some kind of signal from the present, some, some data point or collection of data points that allows them to start to interpret what's happening in the world in a way that uh, divorces their perspective temporarily from these megatrends that are um, quite easily found in your latest issue of Wired Magazine or um, you know Business Week or whatever. So a lot of times in the workshops that we run and in the projects that I do with my students, we start by uh, doing a signal scanning exercise. And so we're really looking for any type of event that has the potential in the subjective uh, perspective of the student or the, the researcher to impact the future, to, um, to be disruptive, to grow and to transform the world around us. And so this signal scanning exercise um, comes in many different forms depending on what the, the end goal is. But oftentimes we'll use a tool that uh, comes from um, oftentimes the, the business space uh, it's called the steep model, and the steep model is is useful as a way to classify or organize the signals that you're collecting. So let's say, for example, you're focusing in on on new technological developments. We can consider that a, a primarily, you know, Hololens uh, arrives on the market. That's a, a technological uh, facet of um, what might be happening right now. Um, STEEP stands for social, technological, ecological, politic, economic. Um, Man, so what's coming we, from quite a lot of different angles all at once. Yeah, yeah. Th these are five angles that, um, although they're not exhaustive, are, um, they, they help to triangulate a perspective on the world that's a bit more broad. That's, um, you know, a lot of times futures work focuses in on purely technological um, flavors we see a lot of yeah. like um new computer interfaces or um a lot of talk about um ai as this this uh supreme technological entity but there's a lot of potential change that happens devoid of of uh technology as its core uh, maybe technology is a, a result or a yeah, yeah. secondary implication I suppose you get quite a few different um, kind of outputs and results from these conversations, like the subjective nature of the different people and the, out, the kind of um, the perspectives they bring to the, this exercise at the beginning, depending on their backgrounds, where they're coming from, their experience. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think a lot of the visions that we have in our heads are uh, there because someone's put them there. You know, we've, <laughs> many of us have been going to see uh, Hollywood movies since we were young people. Um, a lot of these Hollywood movies are based in a future scenario. We also have all sorts of rhetoric coming from politicians and uh, political think tanks all around us. And likewise, these guys are giving us these very specific visions of the future um, that don't necessarily leave much room for us to create our own. And so one of the, the goals that Chris and I have had in running, really starting the extrapolation factory is to look for the in-between spaces uh, where some of the, um, the personal desires could come into play and um, illuminate the, the, um, the non-political or non-top-down future visions. So it's quite interesting because it shares quite a lot of similarity with... Uh... 
uh, the workshop that we've been running as well as part of EVFA. And it's a quite an interesting thing because what we were wondering most of the time when running this workshop is about this like dissemination of narratives because you're talking about obviously Hollywood or political uh, celebrities and also, uh, I don't know, technological particular kind of uh, emerging that create this kind of narrative such as AI, like a big buzzword, etc. So how do you uh, think, what do you think to start with about like methods about disseminating these particular narratives of the future? And uh, also when you say, try to find a crack to actually create your own particular future, like how do you come to that particular point in, in a more kind of engaging a wider audience around that? Because at some point you're also yourself creating a narrative uh, through these workshops. Absolutely. Yeah. The workshops are, are not objective. Um, we, what? we had to really, <laughs> the truth is out there. <laughs> on. Yeah. Um, so a lot of times the, the workshops start with a, a preset group of signals that we've introduced. Mm -hmm. Um, and there, you know, just in introducing those signals, we're, we're bringing in some of our own bias, but, um, we've tried uh, as much as possible in most of our workshops to really have the participants do the signal scanning. And um, what this does is is introduces a feedstock that's coming from all of the perspectives in the room. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes, the signals that end up being most um, impactful are the ones that are are resonant, that are you know fresh in someone's mind. Um, so especially in these uh, recent days where there's a lot of political uh, transformation, we're, we're seeing a lot of, of referencing of the, the new political shift, the new normal. And um, so that is, that is one perspective on the future. Um, sometimes we will, again, introduce our subjective viewpoint and kind of push back on, on some of the purely political or, or overarchingly political uh, signal scanning to to ask people to introduce other facets of um, their personal experience, and so um, hopefully there's a, a breadth that, that comes through this this dialogue, um, moving us beyond the the most um, resonant or immediate uh, signals that that they have on mind. Um, so in terms of, of outreach or uh, extending these ideas into the world, a lot of times the work that we do is picked up by the, the blogosphere or um, mm -hmm. other exhibitions. and It goes out that way. And that's a nice way of, of having these items um, kind of seen by the rest of the world. But we're really interested in opportunities where these things feel a little bit more real. There is maybe a suspension of disbelief. Mm -hmm. um, the first project that we did back in, um, well, we started developing it in 2012 and launched it in 2013, was a, a 99 cent store of the future in downtown Brooklyn, New York. And we worked with a group of about 30 to 40 participants to create these fictional artifacts, props of um, things that you might find in a dollar store in the future. And yeah, then I saw, saw pictures of the store on your site it, from the outside. It looks like a, a standard kind of dollar store pound store. I mean, kind of call it what you, you, that kind of thing. It looks, looks very legitimate as a, as a kind of genuine piece of the street furniture. And then, and then inside what was happening inside it describe yeah. the so experience inside of, it, of turning um, up. 
you would walk in and, and really we had worked with a, a dollar store, an existing dollar store to uh, showcase the items. So uh, you would walk into a fully functioning dollar store with uh, employees who were there every day anyway. Um, some of the customers were regulars. They were coming in to pick up a, a stick of deodorant or, um, I don't know, insoles for their shoes. And they'd be walking down the aisles and they would come across these items that, that looked a bit unfamiliar. Um, and there would be a moment where they would take a, a double take, take a second look and kind of, you know, maybe pick the thing up or flip it over. Many of the objects look quite curious. Um, there were assemblages of random other items. They didn't really look like anything anyone had ever seen before. But you you so could purchase them. Could you buy You could it? purchase them. Yeah, they were on sale. Um, so Only had, one dollar. <laughs> yeah, we had replicated them. We, we made about 100 items in the end after there were right. uh, 30, 33 objects originally made. And we sold almost the entire stock of, of what was in the store. People were really interested to be able to take these things home with them and um, have a, a piece of the future to reflect on. That was, that was an exciting part of that project. So how did you arrive at, at these objects? How did, you, how did you come up with these assemblages? Yeah, so we used a signal uh, database that we had collected um, after looking at a number of uh, bodies of research done by other futurists, um, looking at, at projections that uh, some of the technologists in the, um, the Silicon Valley have been uh, proposing, but then also other social, uh, social futurists, uh, for example, to, to think about how the world might change. We asked the participants to reflect on these and to say, you know, do I believe this? Do I want this? Uh, do I want it to look different? And then each of the participants would pick out a few of these signals that really resonated with them and start to form a, a narrative, a, a day in the life of type story that could help them to uh, visualize what they were thinking. Um, and from the day in the life story, they identified one physical artifact that might show up there. And then we had a, a kind of product hacking workshop uh, set up in one side of the room. And, and from that point, people would just start to uh, build out um, with hot glue and very crude uh, construction materials, these physical artifacts, and then package them up using a set of templates that we had developed. So we had a, a cohesive brand. Nice. Between Got to keep the consistent brand identity brand. constant. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what kind of products did you end up with at the end of this workshop? Yeah, we had a pretty interesting range. We had a, a home transplant kit for uh, replacing your own organs. Handy. <laughs> uh, the organ was not included. You got to buy that elsewhere. Uh, we had... Very, uh, very kind of capitalist <laughs> idea. <laughs> got to make that a, money. Spacesuit replacement, uh, lining replacement. Um, so if you, know, you, you haven't gone up to space for a while and the, the padding in your helmet is starting to deteriorate, you can pick up this new kit. Yeah, I hate it when that happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had a, um, a DNA uh, hacking kit uh, for building small new life forms. Um, and this was meant to really just be a, a toy or a game for, uh, for people who were um, experiencing legal LSD trips in the future. Um, and this is based on a, a vision that was proposed by um, an individual who's who's working toward legalizing certain hallucinogenics. Um, 
So this participant in the workshop really uh, liked that idea and said, maybe we should reconsider the legality of LSD. And as we do, um, we'll, we'll find the overlap between synthetic biology and LSD to be fascinating. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I was just wondering, like, because uh, all these objects, they feel pretty kind of, it's almost, yeah, they feel so tangible already when you describe them, even before seeing the object. Uh, so we were just wondering, like, how far do you take the futures in your workshops? Is it something that you predetermine or is it something like that you let your participant decide in some ways? It varies from workshop to workshop, but uh, the, the idea of a time horizon is one of the uh, languages that we introduce at the beginning of our workshops. I think when we talk to people about the future, there's often kind of a, a vision of just like some milestone at the end, and that is the future. You know, we will have flying cars when we get to the future, for yeah. instance. Uh, but if we really start to think of the future as this uh, expanding, contracting uh, time space like the past, Mm -hmm. um, where we can work five years in or seven years in or 11 years in, uh, that gives us a, a sense of realism, um, and scale that, that then we can build into the designing that we do. So, uh, oftentimes we'll do a backcasting exercises with our students or with our, uh, participants where we ask them to think about a, a future 50 years down the road and then do incremental steps back to help them see more um, uh, realistic visions in the near term that, that might actually be things that we can work toward. So kind of a lineage to a possible future. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Okay. It's kind of realism and tangibility is, seems to be a really important feature here. I mean, in terms of the setting in the, in the dollar store and, and actually building a context that is, uh, makes futures almost plausible. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, kind of art design futures work that that makes the future feel very inaccessible. You know, it's mm -hmm. um, incomprehensible and mysterious and maybe uh, just a, a bit uh, cloudy. And so as we've been doing this work, we've we've really tried to use the language of design and sometimes consumerism to bring these ideas into a space that people already inhabit in their, their own um, mental time. Yeah, that, I was just wondering when I was listening to you about um, about these, uh, these, I mean, sorry, I'm just going to go back a little bit in time. Uh, it's, I was Backwards, just, <laughs> we're talking about the yeah, future exactly. here. I know, <laughs> wrong way around. Uh, I was just thinking, when you ask the participants to uh, scan the signals of tomorrow, and et cetera, like how, I mean, concretely, how does it work? Do you, do you come with a, with a set of data that they have to pick from? Do they have to do like research on their own in places like on particular, I don't know, website? Is it all on, like, how does that manifest in some ways? So um, it's important to keep in mind that the signal scanning that we do in our uh, one day workshops is not a thorough signal scanning. Um, what? <laughs> if a, if a, a futurist is going to be trained futurist is going to be doing signal scanning, they will oftentimes spend yeah. weeks, maybe more. Um, but then also they've been doing this for years and years and years. And, and so they're drawing upon a, a body of knowledge that's, that's more deeply ingrained. Um, so in our workshops, we are tapping, um, something of the, um, just kind of like the, the surrounding peripheral data uh but we definitely push 
participants to think about future uh, signals coming from places beyond just the um, uh, news media or research journals, although that's where a lot yeah. of this stuff is coming from. Um, it's certainly interesting to introduce a, a study by researchers at MIT and think about that as a signal for possible change in the future. But you can also look at uh, a new project on Kickstarter as a signal for the yeah. future, right? Yeah, yeah. We can imagine um, some <laughs> idea that someone has half-baked, posted up on Kickstarter, transforming the way we think about um, wearable technology, for instance. Yeah. Uh, Likewise, uh, you might find signals coming from uh, kind of social media. Maybe, maybe the conversations that are happening on Twitter, for example, around um, a, an issue of, of politicized race in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, begins to emerge as a signal for, for ways that social dynamics could change in the American South. So... Signals can come from just about anywhere. The interpretation of the signal is also highly subjective. Yeah. Um, Jim Dater, the former director of the Minoa School in Hawaii, always said that uh, you can't study the future because there is no future, right? There, there are multiple fictional versions of the future that we can all work on building. And as we do so, we're, we're doing that um, with our own uh, kind of take it, uh, built in, whether we like it or not. And so signal scanning is, is really just as subjective as uh, many other parts of futures uh, research that we do. Yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, the outcomes of your, do you use the outcomes of one workshop onto the other, or they're all separate entities? Well, uh, methodologically, they definitely build on one another. Um, and as we learn what works and what doesn't work with people, um, it folds in. But the specific futures don't necessarily always uh, lapse or, or build on, on the next um, in every case. But that said, we did run a project over the last year with the Walker Arts Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, where we really did build on the future visions that were developed. Mm -hmm. So we invited participants at the, the Walker Art Center in December of 2016 to imagine how the urban infrastructure of cities could change in the future to serve non-humans in addition to humans. And mm -hmm. um, we're, we're really interested in thinking about how other living organisms um, can benefit uh, and maybe even uh, harmoniously and symbiotically coexist. Uh, as opposed to the way a lot of cities are built now, where um, you know the concrete jungle style of of construction really concrete eradicates. Concrete jungle is quite a nice kind of terminology or turn of phrase yeah. when you're talking about creating a kind of living yeah. ecosystem of a city. Return to the and jungle. And even at this point, some of the most um, hardy species are are being pushed out. In in New York City, raccoons are um, becoming more scarce because uh, there's just there's much less habitat space for the raccoons. Um, but Within so the we were city, interested in, yeah. I was just thinking about, you see those images of, of and you read about things in, um, I think it's in Japan where there's, there's bears kind of going from the countryside now into the city. So it kind of goes both ways as well. And up in, it does, yeah. in Canada and yeah. stuff, polar bears coming into the high street <laughs> and stuff like that. Do their shopping on the high street. <laughs> Damn. Right. From the dollar store. Yeah. Where do you get your fur from? <laughs> 
There was one in our future 99 cent store. <laughs> I was wondering, like, so how did you get in touch with the guy from the uh, 99 store? Did you did you get in touch with that person before, or or it just happened? Uh, you planned to do that and then got in touch with that with the, the show partner. So we we had this vision for the event taking place in a shop um, five months before the the event took place, and so part of what we felt was important was to really build a relationship with the shop owner. Mm-hmm. So um, we went to a number of shops and talked to them about the idea of doing this. And um, many of them were really not interested, understandably, because this this type of stuff doesn't feel like it has an immediate value to many people. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, this one shop owner um, thought about it for a second, and he was he was relatively dismissive. And his <laughs> his wife, who was uh, kind of his um, second in command, I suppose, she was helping out um, behind the scenes at the shop that day, and. She came out from behind the counter and she told her husband, let me take care of these guys. Let me talk to these guys. Um, and so she she sat down with us and she said, guys, what do you want? Let's talk. And so we hashed out the ideas. She said, OK, this is pretty interesting. Um, and we arrived at an agreement where we would dress the windows of their store for three months in exchange for allowing us to host the event. So we really we found a nice way to um, to offer each other something to, to offer some benefit. Um, we had never done window dressing, so that was an experience in itself. <laughs> uh, we, we, at the end, we really felt like we had bonded with the, all of the storekeepers and the store owners. Um, in the end, the husband really appreciated the project, thought it was great, although um, he asked us to please take the cash for DNA sign out of the window that <laughs> night because he was worried that his his uh, customers would really try to ask for cash for DNA. <laughs> but it was you know. it was a fantastic experience, um, especially because the people who we were you know working with uh, to set this store up were so far from the uh, stereotypical. Western white male characters who are doing a lot of the, the mm-hmm. futures work that, that we've seen so far, um, you know, kind of going back to the, the Herman Kahn uh, figure. It's, these people were, were just so, um, they had such different worldview. And I think that was really exciting for us that um, it, was, it was kind of, you know, it's beyond its time. There, there should be a much more diverse group of people who are doing this work than there really is right now. I think that's one of the fantastic things about the work you guys are, are doing and, and democratizing futures in a way, kind of opening them up, making them accessible and, and bringing them to a wide, kind of really wide audience. Super cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, part of uh, our work is uh, an exchange. You know, we're, we're learning from others as we go. And so, we were out in Russia um, a couple of years back running a workshop, and we were presenting some of the models that we have collected from other academic futurists. And we shared a model that proposes several different uh, levels of probability of the future, going from the probable to the plausible, uh, the possible, and the impossible. Thinking of these as, as tiers, moving away from what we expect to happen. Mm-hmm. And we presented this idea to a, a group of about 30 Russian designers. And one of them stopped us and said, we need to go back. We need to really look at this language. Because in our language, we don't have this, uh, or we don't use this, this array of, of terms to talk about the future. 
he said in at least in his experience the um the russian perspective on the future was just that tomorrow is coming it'll be tomorrow there is this singularity of so uh, do you mean future quite short term kind of projection like or yeah or, or almost it's going to happen and we let it happen yeah. around us yeah um and so we realized that there isn't a universal view of the future at all uh it's you know from culture to culture the future can be so different and um as we run these workshops we learn so much from people uh who come from different backgrounds and perspectives and i think that underscores um this the the impetus for the practice really to develop a, a forum for exchange around the way we can think about the future and how do you so it's very really super interesting because um in, in our in our research project as well we sort of like i mean basically we we really into democratizing future and we really think it's important too and i was just wondering with regard to your project how do you manage to sort of reinject your the things your knowledge and things that you've seen experience and everything through your workshops into the sorts of like white male futurists community uh tech makers and those kind of thing yeah that's that's a great question i think um just the notion of democratizing futures has really caught on uh in the last few years we've seen a lot more of this stuff happening um and we certainly don't take credit for um the you know igniting of this energy but we're very yeah, we take credit for that don't worry <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> that's on you guys yeah you're Thanks. welcome you're welcome <laughs> but um i i think co-designing futures is is really critical for um for a long time there were scenarios where you'd have you know 10 white males at rand corporation sitting in a room envisioning the future and the more we focus on democratization of of future views uh future tools the the more we will be able to integrate these diverse perspectives and and start to build them into strategic plans back to the strategic design i can see everything kind of exactly. starting to fit together it, it's it all neat. holds back yeah yeah i there's I, a thing that we were quite interested in asking you as well because obviously uh we know your work and we went through uh your website just before this interview but your your projects in general have a, have a very kind of uh, clear visual language is it something uh you bring to the objects you are exploring or you using the aesthetic as a kind of visualization of the future or as a way to engage um your your audience with these I future? think there yeah that's a good question i i think there's um certainly a, a power in the um aesthetic aestheticization of Uh, physical objects mm -hmm. and part of what we're really trying to do through the practice is is to connect people to some of these ideas and so if if that happens through an aesthetic language that appeals that um kind of draws the curiosity from someone or or causes someone to kind of you know take a second look that that has uh currency You're in our view um, so so there's there's that part um we're also interested in thinking about how the future is oftentimes kind of a a mashup of pieces of the present the past etc um mm -hmm. so when we do these product hacking workshops we're really integrating parts of familiar worlds that we already know with um assemblages or or frameworks that feel uh kind of um foreign 
And I, I think that comes through in the aesthetic as well. The aesthetic is uh, kind of, you know, 50% familiar, 50% alien. And that that mix really draws people in. They're, they feel comfortable engaging with it, but they also want to know more and they, they want to understand it. Yeah, I guess that's kind of important, isn't it? Because it's not as yeah. because we're in the future, the past has disappeared. Everything has its lineage kind of comes back and comes from somewhere. So. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's super interesting. In our workshop, we use often the word like, yeah, trying to create the future, turn the future into some sort of familiar unknown. And that's the kind of like thing that we uh, keep on thinking about uh, um, when we try to kind of tangibilize like some, some future ideas. Uh, I was wondering, especially in your prototyping workshop, like how do you choose the like bits of objects that people are asked to assemble afterwards? Is that something that was like lying around in your garage or <laughs> do you go there and do you go to the 99 cent shop and then buy everything? We're, we are actually very careful about the material selection in the workshops. Uh, Chris and I both feel really strongly that there are certain qualities of um, stuff that, that allows it to be interpreted in wider ways or more narrow ways. Um, so it's, it's not common that we will have something sitting around as a, a hackable material that is a very... Um, easily deciphered item. Every once in a while there is, but a lot of times the things that we have um, are shapes, they're, um, they're volumes that can be interpreted in a number of ways, you know, um, sometimes even going down to the, like a geometric uh, primitive, a, a cylinder, a sphere, a, a box, but then also um, things that communicate function without specifically telling us what singular function they were initially designed to serve. So mm -hmm. uh, tubes and pipes and brushes and um, large flat surfaces, uh, meshes and grates. Um, we really like to introduce a diversity of materials. So something that's, um, you know, a stainless steel, shiny, something that looks like it could be medical grade, um, a, a badly produced injection molded piece of plastic that looks like it's kind of a, a knockoff or a reproduction. Um, oh, we'll so have organic materials, woods and, and um, clays. Uh, oftentimes we'll introduce um, fake plants even as a, a way to kind of go forward into this, this organic matter space. Um, We've tried using some truly organic materials, but because oftentimes we're ex exhibiting the work that is created in these workshops, um, you know, a, a piece of a, a leaf looks very different two weeks after you've started working with it. So um, <laughs> that's become a challenge. It's the future catching up with the artifacts <laughs> from the future. <laughs> exactly. The other thing that we're really interested in is uh, as much as possible, moving away from miniatures and, and scale artifacts. We really like to make things at one-to-one -one scale, kind of the, the scale of the human body. Yeah, that's and so, one of the things uh, in your Walker Center installation is these are these are large one-to-one -one installations in, a, in and around the city or in and around the gallery? Yeah, so the, the Walker actually kind of breaks this rule that we set for ourselves. We initially... Uh, ran a workshop where we had people create miniatures of infrastructure that could exist around the city. But that was just a way for us to um, 
allow people to think bigger, think in at scale, uh, larger scale. But then after those initial uh, scaled down models were created, we took those ideas and turned them into one-to-one objects. So we created these very large physical steel structures that existed outside in the city. Um, and now they're, they're positioned in three different points around Minneapolis. So do you have any examples of the kind of structures, the kind of functions of these installations? Yeah, so one of them, each of these installations is a device that allows us to, in a sense, listen to an organism that can tell us something about the way the world is changing, an indicator species. Um, So one of them is a a mailbox that would be used to collect uh, letters from really anyone who wants to to send a message. Um, But the mailbox has... uh, 400 pound boulder built into it and so on this boulder is uh, a lichen that's that's slowly growing uh and transforming as it does it's it's serving as a bioindicator, an interpreter of the air quality in that area and so we have asked people to kind of listen to the lichen think about what the lichen might be saying about the future through uh studies in, in air quality, visualizations, and um, uh, time-lapse uh, video tracking of the lichen growth that we present back to people. And then we have people write letters to local politicians on behalf of the lichen. So wow, in this, this way, is, this we, is happening. We, people, are, people are responding to the work in that way. They're, they're writing yeah, to the... We've collected um, over a thousand letters now on behalf of lichens, warblers, wow. and monarch butterflies. Uh, that have been sent to local politicians in the Minneapolis, Minnesota region. So they must love you up there. They, I think they really do. <laughs> Going to get invited back really soon. By they, I mean the lichen. I don't know about Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. Um, so um, I wanted to ask a couple of things about your kind of hopes for the future and also your thoughts about the very, very far away coming coming back and kind of sync with with the, the project we're doing and and this weekend's event at the VNA. Um, so with VVFA, we, we're using space exploration as a lens to explore current ideas and values pertaining to potential futures. Um, we, so we get to talk a lot about space and technology to people in terms of futures. Are there any kind of key themes that you, you think really work well to engender an audience to start to think about the future? And, and what are your thoughts in terms of... Um, the very, very far away kind of extraterrestrial extrapolations, if you will, that kind of thing. Yeah, so uh, starting with just kind of key themes that I think are important. Uh, one of the pieces that I've been really interested in recently is the, the notion of how we can reconstruct economies in the future, uh, thinking about how um, platforms like capitalism could be um, rethought and not replaced by another existing economic system that that might uh, have surfaced in the the historical past, but rather to continually look for totally new versions of uh, economic systems. Um, Douglas Rushkoff in his book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, proposes an alternative to capitalism that he is very uh, adamant about um, when he says it's it's not socialism. He talks about this idea of democratism and proposes that um, we can start to build 
economic um, institutions that allow for a, a constant generation of wealth without a concentration of wealth. So I think there are uh, examples like this, these uh, alternative economies that go beyond the economies that, that we've been looking at that are, that are really fascinating to me because they do have ripple effects that, that impact so many other parts of our experiences. Um, so I think that's an interesting space to, to look, and I, I think it probably impacts the outlook for a number of extraterrestrial opportunities. You know, if we start to think about space travel as less of this um, premium tourism experience that uh, Richard Branson has proposed, but, you know, maybe maybe we start to think of, of this as a way to relieve the strain on our bodies. So instead of uh, thinking of a retirement home being someplace that's uh, boring and, and dull, maybe retirement homes are actually floating in space and the, the relative lack of gravity allows our bodies to be freer, to be more pain-free uh, pain and to um, kind of perform in, in totally new ways while um, allowing our minds to continue on if our minds are healthy and stable. It's a good idea. Send your, your old people into space. <laughs> <laughs> That's very really good. Uh, so talking about these futures, uh, so the kind of like the last question that we have is like, what's next for the extrapolation factory? We're always, uh, always hatching new ideas, but uh, we've recently launched a residency that we're super excited about. We have three new residents that we're going to be announcing shortly. Um, we have residents coming from around the world. One person is currently based in Geneva. One person is based in Dubai. And uh, two of our other residents are based in New York. Um, we're really interested in introducing uh, perspectives on the future that are not our own. And so I think through the residency, we're, we're really hoping to start to facilitate this mutual exchange in which you know we learn just as much from these residents as we're able to offer them uh, in terms of mentorship and support. Um, I think there are probably many residencies that operate in this way, but the idea of a, a mutualistic residency is really exciting to us. That's great. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Wow. Well, yeah, thanks, Elliot, for taking the time to talk through us. I think that the work that you guys are doing out there is is really kind of trailblazing in terms of kind of democratizing, opening up and making accessible new futures and potential options to, to really wide range of people. So, yeah. Thanks for the opportunity, guys. Yeah, we're really excited about this stuff. And um, we are, you know, hopeful that, that there will be a, last, a longer lasting impact. So we'll see. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. Well, thank you very much again. Uh, thanks for right. participating. Uh, and hopefully... We'll see you soon again. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Take Cheers, care, guys. Bye.